wearable technology, things like activity trackers or smartwatches, is becoming more and more popular. Those devices track fitness levels or vital signs. Add to the mix digital health apps and other mobile technologies, and there's a trove of data that's being translated into meaningful health information, not only for users, but for physicians and researchers. In this next episode of The Pursuit of Precision, The Science Advancing Individualized Medicine, we'll explore the emergence of these digital tools in genomic medicine. I'm glad you're with us. I'm Kathy Worzer. We're joined by two experts who will talk about the possibilities and challenges of using digital tools in genomic medicine. Dr. Iftikhar Kalu is a consultant in the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at Mayo Clinic. He's also on the National Advisory Council on Human Genome Research with the National Institutes of Health. Also with us, we are so pleased that Dr. Yvonne Bombard is here. She directs the Genomics Health Services Research Program at St. Michael's Hospital Unity Health in Toronto. I am so pleased that both of you are taking the time to join us. How are you both? Great. Hey, Thank great. you for having me. Oh, it's Thank a real pleasure, me. a real pleasure. Dr. Bombard, let's begin with the exploding number of digital health apps and portals and platforms and devices out there. How is the influx of digital tools changing precision genomic medicine? Wow, Kathy, that's the heart of the question right out of the gate, and that's great. With COVID and the pandemic, it really launched our community of practice into this new reality of digital healthcare. On top of the pre-existing wait times and workforce shortages that unfortunately have only become exacerbated after the pandemic, it really revealed this urgency in digital and virtual care interventions to minimize the disruptions and compromise access to care. And certainly for less remote, less served communities out there, these kinds of solutions really do improve access and reduce wait times and enable that continuity of care and access to healthcare. But for genomics, it's become even more exciting. Actually, if you look back in the last couple of decades, we've been using these digital technologies for quite a few years now, whether they're decision aids that we use online or emerging use of chatbots, et cetera. These are the kind of technologies that are really being thrust into the front lines for patients to be using um, and, and with those kinds of benefits to enable broader access to genetic testing, because as is fundamental to personalized medicine, genetic testing is a fundamental diagnostic test that we're going to be using in all areas of healthcare, neurology, cardiology, oncology, pediatrics. It's a fundamental first step to personalize patients' healthcare. Dr. Kalu, I'm wondering here, genomic medicine uses polygenic risk scores to estimate a person's risk for a specific disease. And, and given that large-scale genomic data sets are used to calculate polygenic risk scores for certain diseases, I'm, I'm curious about how might the equation change with the influx of data from these digital devices? What we are realizing is that... Uh, we don't do very well in predicting risk of common diseases. So, I mean, I'm a cardiologist. One of my main areas of interest is uh, predicting who is at risk for heart attack. We realize that these common diseases that we call them are actually complex. So they have multiple causal factors. That's why there's a lot of interest in using polygenic risk scores because the original equations that were developed to predict the risk of heart attack were actually developed 60 years ago. And since then, we are pretty much using the same equations. So there's tremendous excitement that finally we have a new biomarker that can be incorporated in these equations and uh, perhaps make their accuracy better, make them more refined. 
But at the same time, I don't think we can stop there. We know the importance of the environment. Typically, we don't have a lot of information about the environment. We can get some data from the electronic health record, typically, you know, smoking, maybe diet or activity. But to really get fine-grained data on environmental factors and activity, these digital tools or variables are going to transform our ability to predict the risk of disease. But that also has a lot of challenges because the data from these variables is, you know, what we call big data. And we have to really then combine the variable data from these digital devices with the genomic data and thereby try to improve a prediction of common diseases. How is this working, by the way? And and Dr. Bombard, you touched on this. In communities of color, people who are not, don't have access to some of the wearables that are out there, does this exacerbate perhaps inequities? For sure, Kathy, and that's a really vital part of this conversation. I think that what we're doing is just developing more advanced technologies that layer upon existing disparities and inequities in low tech and existing access to healthcare, right? So we really need to be thinking about not only high-tech solutions, but also low-tech solutions to be coupled together to expand access depending on, you know, broadband access, depending on someone's access to a smartphone or kiosks to be able to access a point-of-care provider through telehealth, for example, that might not be able to provide this kind of service in low resource limited settings or the underserved communities in remote and rural areas. And certainly among racialized and underserved communities, we already have existing disparities, those communities in healthcare writ large and in genomic medicine as well. And as we then layer on more complex and advanced technologies, there is the potential to widen those health disparities even further and exacerbate them. The kinds of solutions where we're really thinking about user-centered design and being very mindful of co-creating these solutions with the communities within the settings and environments and the technical realities available in those settings is going to be the path forward. So not only testing these kinds of technologies and making sure that they don't exacerbate those existing disparities, but also when we start to build new ones or adapt the technologies that we have, we really need to be in lockstep at the same table, empowering those patients and communities to help us in a co-designed, co-created manner to make sure those technologies are implementable in the spaces and places that they're meant to serve these families and these patients. Dr. Kalu, would you like to go ahead and, and add anything to this in terms of how it reflects on your research? It's an incredibly important area. I can't tell you how much the whole field is really focusing on this. I'm proud to say that the genomics community is really leading the way, or at least um, putting a lot of effort into promoting equity in genomic medicine and other domains of, we might call them high-tech. Dr. Bombard just mentioned these tools that she is developing. There are three imperatives here. I mean, one is moral, the other is ethical, and the last is scientific. So all of these are incredibly important. And I think if we promote equity, we will be addressing these imperatives, moral, ethical, and scientific. You know, I remember when we started doing GWAS, which was about 15 years ago, there was tremendous excitement. And 
we were just pulling data from wherever we could and uh, reporting that out. And it was incredibly exciting. We got all these new variants we discovered and it was quite an era. I would say that over the last few years, we've kind of paused a little bit because we realized, oh, this wonderful data is applicable to only certain individuals and communities. And so we are kind of taking a pause, but I'm glad to say there's a lot of people thinking about us. How do we correct this? Because we cannot worsen disparities. Genomic discoveries, unfortunately, are not broadly portable. They're not portable to, for example, individuals of African ancestry. And there's a lot of uh, work happening, and I'm happy to describe that um, at a later stage in our conversation or now. I think we should do it right now, as a matter of fact. You just let us in very nicely. (laughs) Okay. The problem has to be tackled on different fronts. First of all, we have realized that 86% of genomic data is from individuals of European ancestry. And so uh, one of the first attempts is to really collect larger amounts of data from uh, individuals from uh, minority groups. The second effort is to develop new methods so that we can use whatever data we have in a more efficient manner so that it's more applicable to individuals of diverse ancestry. In terms of collecting large amounts of data, I think the All of Us initiative is going to be really important. We will end up with a million people across the United States, and half of them will be of minority or diverse ancestry groups. So that's a wonderful initiative and will help to mitigate some of these disparities. I'm part of um, NIH-sponsored initiative called the Prime Consortium, and that is actually working as we speak on, uh, again, collecting diverse data sets from all over the world, from Africa, from Asia, from diverse ancestry groups within this country, and also developing methods so that whatever we have currently can be utilized in these groups that are underserved and understudied. So I think those are some of the efforts that are ongoing uh, to tackle this incredibly important problem. And I should end by saying that it doesn't end there. I think we need to increase the diversity of the genomic workforce. I'm uh, pleased to say that the National Human Genome Research Institute has really sponsored a lot of educational initiatives and other incentives so that individuals from minority groups can participate, become experts, become genomic geneticists, and so that'll end up in diversifying the workforce. That's the kind of collaborative, synergistic efforts that we need. You know, I'm a board member of the American Society of Human Genetics and working with partnerships at NHGRI, like Dr. Kalu has just described, it's going to take a monumental effort to essentially try to create a ripple in an ocean of change, right from the kind of training and workforce diversity and, and elevating individuals that who have otherwise been shut out of training opportunities and enabling them to participate in healthcare workforce, but also in the research workforce. You know, there's evidence to show that diversifying the kinds of researchers that we have will also lead to diverse research questions and kind of research studies that are impactful and prioritized by these communities that are experiencing these disparities. But it's also not an, it's, it's a paradigm shift for scientists as well. It's not something that as a scientific community that we spend a lot of time in our educational and training systems, as well as in the healthcare and medical systems, discussing and having that cultural humility and having that cultural safety training, both as frontline healthcare workers, but even as individuals recruiting patients for research studies, even in engaging patients as partners in the 
research and how we design our research and what questions and outcomes that we probe and focus on in our research need to be prioritized by those communities that have been essentially minoritized by our structures. It's our structures that have created these systems. So we have to also think about those barriers and access and, and facilitators that Dr. Kalu is talking about and that are obviously being amplified by the co collaborative partnerships by various societies and communities that we're talking about are at the forefront. And work that we're doing, at least in my lab, is trying to actually collect the best practices of engaging racialized and underserved minorities and share those best practices with both scientists and with clinician scientists so that we can start to have the kinds of mechanisms in place to create safe spaces and appropriate mechanisms to reduce some of those power dynamics and elevate partnered community practiced research so that we can start to you know move the needle on some of the real mistrust and history of eugenics that unfortunately is the backdrop behind a lot of the behind our work behind in our history to that extent of course the american society of human genetics actually published facing our history documenting some of the myths of our history in the role of eugenics in the part that we play some of that insight needs to be forefronted in order for us to move forward and put to, put in place both the structures and the best practices in our research and our clinical care and our technologies and these amazing digital technologies that we're hoping to advance as well. Let's talk a little bit about the technology here. I want to kind of circle back to that, if I could, for just a moment. For folks who might not be terribly familiar, perhaps, Let's just lay out a, just a basic groundwork here, if we could, how these digital tools, there's so many digital tools and apps and platforms, how might they support better access to genetic testing and care? Yeah, one of the things actually we noticed was during the COVID pandemic, how these digital technologies actually made it easier for patients to access genetic counseling. We would have people coming from three, four hours away, and we would have a consultation for them. And they would wonder, would they have to drive back and then come back? And so I think that the mandate that allowed these virtual consultations were really helpful and it, it made it easier for patients to access genetic counseling. So that's just an example of how technology can make it easier for patients to access genetic services. And also it can help them to interpret genetic tests better, get in touch with their providers and perhaps engage in shared decision-making and then finally, they can uh, quite easily participate in genetic research. We actually were in the midst of a large recruitment effort for a genomic study when the pandemic hit. And we had to very quickly transition to a virtual recruitment effort. But fortunately for us, we were able to adapt quickly and we were successful in maintaining our recruitment. I've had a lot of uh, experience, actually. Um, one of my areas of interest is a condition called familial hypercholesterolemia which is uh, for a genetic condition relatively common, about one in 250. And we actually developed a suite of tools to help patients and providers that are dealing with this condition. For example, I can talk about increasing awareness. So a lot of these people are not uh, diagnosed. And if we mine the electronic health record and we find some clues that this di uh, disorder may be present, we can send an alert to the physician and so that's step one, the physician of care provider becomes aware that this patient may have that genetic diagnosis. And that's important because it can cause heart attack or sudden death, and it's preventable very easily. The second step was then to provide 
what we call decision support to the providers so that they can actually know what to do now that the patient has this condition. What are the next steps? Should they start a statin? Should they do some tests? Should they refer the patient to a cardiologist? Uh, the third in this suite of tools was uh, what we call a decision aid or a conversation aid. So that's, again, an app we developed where now that the diagnosis is made, the patient is in front of the physician and the two can together make a decision about what medication is needed, what are the costs of that medication, what are the potential side effects, what are the benefits. And this is actually built on previous decision aids created at Mayo. And then finally, one of the signature features of genetic disease is that it clusters in families. So if you discover the, what we call the proband, then the first-degree relatives uh, are at risk. And so that app we developed was to allow the patient to communicate with their first-degree relatives so that they can make them aware that I have this condition and you may be at risk. And the uptake of uh, such what we call cascade testing, unfortunately, in the U.S. is very low. But with this app, we hope to improve on that rate. So this is just an example of a suite of tools, digital tools, that can help increase awareness, uh, better management of a genetic condition. So there are many such examples, I think, that we can avail of as we move towards this era of uh, digital aids and technologies. Dr. Kalu mentioned this interface where patient and physician can talk. And I'm wondering, this sounds a little bit like, I believe you have a genomics advisor, an online tool that you've developed. Yeah, thank you. I think that the question around access is fundamental, but also what's lost with the focus of digital technologies often is quality of care. And that's where I think the digital health revolution, if you want to call it, or this, or these technologies really at least in, in the way that I've sort of tackled and developed the, the suite of tools and the genetics advisor that I have, is to really focus on the patient-facing side of these technologies. And certainly there's a lot of work by Dr. Kalu and other colleagues really trying to support the physician interface with genomic medicine and the electronic medical record, these alert systems and these clinical decision support tools and these decision aids. But to have a comprehensive end-to-end solution where the patient feels like the coordination and the continuity of care is in one place and is tailored for them, for their reading levels, for their literacy levels, for their way that they consume information, which is not like Dr. Kalu had mentioned. We, we drag our patients out from hours away, make them sit in front of us and basically lecture at them for you know a good 30 to 60 minutes on genetics 101 principles, and then expect them on the spot to make an informed, very sensitive decision about undertaking genetic testing and all the implications it's going to have, those results may have for their own care and for all those family members that, as Dr. Kalu mentioned, are now going to be at risk if they're positive. But how do we then translate that experience and make it better to serve patients and what they need and it be patient-centered? So what we try to do with that, with the genetics advisor, is to actually not only improve access to genetic testing by offloading a lot of the educational and counseling activities that would otherwise drag patients to have to sit there and listen to that in a, in a sort of data dump experience, which we don't actually do to our students. So why do we do this to our patients? So we try to create education and counseling modules that are multimodal in terms of videos and companion text and and provide patient vignettes or stories of the various realities and, and, and experiences 
of what genetic testing is, what the types of results that patients can experience, what they do with those results and the meanings and the various implications that they have. In doing so, we also uh, created in the genetics advisor, a module for interactive communication and decision-making, because we know that we can't replicate what is the specialized unicorns in our healthcare system, which are called genetic counselors. But what we can do is simulate the kind of psychosocial support and the implications that patients need to think about. And we can do that with chatbots and we can do that with the kinds of exercises that we've implemented with chatbots and other and interactive interfaces that we have within the genetics advisor and then provide personalized feedback as to what's happening for the patient, just like a counselor might do. And this is all completely developed with patients and health genetic providers for patients. And a lot of this was based on a huge amounts of interview data, a whole bunch of user-centered design and understanding patient profiles or personas or the kinds of users that and experiences that we need to cater and design for and what kind of messaging that the patients are actually going to value and that are both evidence-based and consistent with standard of care to create that sort of high quality experience and align it with consistent clinical standard of care. So what we did was we ran it through a randomized clinical trial to make sure that not only is it as good as seeing a genetic counselor and returning and receiving results, but we actually show that patients actually have better outcomes in terms of their knowledge and understanding of the basic genetics concepts. The acceptability and satisfaction is way higher. And we actually showed that patients using this genetics advisor platform, it actually led to a reduction in consult time with physicians and counselors at the end of the day, such that all the patients that use the advisor spent 50% less time with their clinician after, which actually alleviates a lot of time for the clinician to serve a lot of patients that are waiting in the wings, but it also improved the patient-centeredness of the interaction with the counselor. What do I mean by that? What we did was we actually audio taped the interactions between the genetic counselors that were interacting with the patients that were randomized to use our genetics advisor and compared those conversations with the patients that just spoke to the genetic counselor as part of standard of care. And when we looked at the transcripts, we literally saw larger chunks of transcript where patients are talking in much more deliberative personalized ways, talking in trade-offs of the risks and benefits that they understood and they gleaned from the platform in a much more personalized way to their healthcare and to their family implications than the one-line sentences in the control or the usual care arm. So what was clear is not only does these kinds of digital tools like the advisor improve knowledge, understanding, satisfaction, and lead to efficiencies for the clinical interaction with the provider, with their clinician, but it also led to much more patient-centered care where the patient was engaged in more informed dialogue, preference-sensitive delivery and trade-offs, and deepened rich personalizations of the issues into their lives. Not only are there efficiencies, but I think quality of care is a real benefit. And for clinicians, they're operating on the top of their scope. I don't think clinicians love being broken records and talking about what a gene means, what a chromosome is, how many genes are in the genome. I think that for them, 
practicing at the top of the stone and actually delivering patient-centered care and talking about that shared decision-making that Dr. Kalu was talking about is where they want to practice. And so these kinds of digital tools and specifically the genetics advisor was able to show that we can actually advance care in these ways for these patients and for their providers. Dr. Kalu, what do you think of that? It's incredibly important. I mean, this is really great work from Dr. Bombard's group. And we actually talk about this almost every day because we are really excited as genetics professionals that genetics is now coming more and more into uh, healthcare and actually uh, at the threshold as we speak of being embedded into primary care. So you can imagine that if we are integrating genomics into everyday care, we really don't have genetic counselors. There is, I think, maybe 18,000 for the whole country. So that paradigm is not going to work. And I think the work Dr. Bombardas and others have done is going to be incredibly important. How can we create these tools and create them in a very scientific, rigorous manner so that they can then be applied in everyday care and lessen the burden on uh, providers and genetic counselors and give these counseling services to patients without that, and potentially in the comfort of their home, without them having to go to the medical center and wait in a time-constrained appointment. So I, I do think that's an incredibly important uh, direction for the research and I, implication into practice, yeah. I think it's fascinating. I truly do. But I am wondering, you know, you both know, a lot of genetic information, test information can be confusing and perhaps frightening to someone. And so I'm wondering, where is the balance between the digital access, which has been tested as rigorous, it sounds great, right? But really much needed human interaction. And I wonder where that fits into this. Yeah, no, I think that's fundamental. I mean, as Dr. Kalu has intimated, we just don't have enough humans in our workforce. And so as genetic testing is now becoming part of mainstream healthcare, and it's being a fundamental part of personalizing cardiac care, oncology care, pediatric care, we need these tests, but we don't have enough healthcare personnel with the experience, the time, and the resources to provide that kind of counseling. And, you know, we are in the midst of a patient empowerment revolution. Patients do want to be empowered and share in that decision-making trio, if you will, as Dr. Kalu had, had described earlier. And how do we empower these patients? We empower them by providing them with the tools, the resources, and the education so that they arrive at those sessions with the very few clinicians we have in the, in the space in ways that allow them to engage as shared decision-makers and allow them to have very efficient and effective patient-centered conversations once they get to those very few humans that we certainly have in our healthcare system. So if these digital tools are used in conjunction with a person, a clinician, or used by themselves, we have to appreciate that. We have to think about the ecosystem of how patients make and want to be empowered. And often to Dr. Kalu's point that in the comfort of their own home, with, surrounded by the trusted family members and other trusted members of their care decisions, we need to empower those patients. And, you know, we don't have hordes of, of individuals coming to a clinical encounter and sitting in the, in the space with all the family members that might be implicated in a genetic testing result or into the healthcare. Why don't we move it into the communities, into the homes, into the spaces where these conversations are 
share those resources, the, the materials with those families, allow them to understand and help the individual making those, con those very preference sensitive decisions so that when they finally have the access to a professional, those are very efficient and active conversations. They're patient-centered. That patient can be empowered to engage in shared decision-making. But in those communities where there's gene deserts, where there are no professionals with the expertise to provide those individuals with the counseling, then at least we have alternative methods to support genetic testing and improve access to care in spite of professionals that might not be available on hand immediately. So that's the kind of hybrid uh, model that might be useful to be thinking about. I've been listening to you both carefully, and it sounds like this could be quite disruptive, the combination of precision genomics and digital health. And I'm wondering how disruptive might it be to the system, the payers, the providers, and the patients? Let's go with the payers first. This sounds like the system could quite be ruptured because of this, and not in a bad way. Yeah, I think the nature of our health system is such that it's uh, sometimes difficult to get things that make sense paid for. So I think one of the tasks uh, as a community we have is to really generate the data that convinces uh, payers to, that you know some of these tools that make life easier, make interpretation of tests easier, and potentially improve outcomes should be uh, paid for. I think that this is such a rapidly moving field, it's hard to make predictions. I think one can say safely that we are at the threshold of a transformative era in medicine. I think that big data is on us, uh, whether it be genomic or whether it be in the electronic health record, combine that with digital tools and the huge amount of data that one could get on an individual from a wearable. You know, how do we combine all of that to improve a prediction of a disease, to make treatment targeted, to reduce adverse drug events, this incredibly exciting era. And I think we all need to work to move that field forward and to demonstrate that this actually improves outcomes. And I think then it'll be uh, easier for these to be you know, reimbursed and paid for. But I think we're we are in a very, very rapidly changing era in medicine, hopefully for the better and it's, uh, I think, going to be really exciting. You know, we're at a confluence of two transformative waves, the digital wave as well as the genomic wave of medicine. So certainly it could look expensive from a payer's perspective, but if you consider these new next generation sequencing technologies and tests that actually have the opportunity to actually save a lot of time and obviate the need for serial testing using other forms of diagnostic tests and just jump to an ex a whole exome or genome sequencing, that has actually shown to be actually improved diagnostic rates. And actually, if it's used as a frontline test in some clinical scenarios can actually save the need for other kinds of tests along the way. So instead of a serial biochemical or other tests that would have otherwise lengthened the diagnostic pathway and actually created some additional expenses, new next generation sequencing can actually improve the diagnostic rate and lead to a faster diagnosis and then actually shorten what from a patient's and family perspective is a very long diagnostic odyssey that is very burdensome and could be very costly to the healthcare system as well. And on the flip side, the digital revolution, if you will, and that disruptive innovation 
could very much parlay into advancing genomic medicine in the ways that we've already described, but also provide some efficiencies in both time and in, in addressing some key workforce gaps. So both of these are complementary solutions. And while on the face of it could look costly, they could actually save a lot of money, save a lot of grief for families that are otherwise searching for years for diagnoses, and also provide access to healthcare and resources where humans and other personnel are, there is a shortage. We have been talking for a while here, and I have a final question, and it's this. It's a simple one, though. What excites you about the work you're doing right now, Dr. Kalu? Well, I think I hinted at some of those elements in my previous responses. I'm a practicing cardiologist, and the reason I got into this area of genomics is that I encountered early in my practice young people who came to me with heart attacks. Many of them didn't have the usual suspect. They didn't have the usual risk factors. I was also struck by the devastation of these events. A lot of them ended up with heart failure. They became disabled. Some actually would have a cardiac arrest outside uh, of the hospital setting. I was really struck by that. I also realized that algorithms to predict who might get a heart attack don't do very well. And I think that uh, we are really making great progress. If you look at the Framingham study, which is a famous study that you must have heard of, that allowed us to create these algorithms or equations to predict the risk, but they have not actually changed over the last 60 years. It's quite astonishing. At the same time, we have witnessed a very dramatic change in drug therapy. We've had clot busters or thrombolytics. We've had statins. We had had ACE inhibitors. So we made incredible progress in that field, but unfortunately, we haven't made much progress in improving risk stratification. So that's what makes uh, this very exciting. I think the polygenic risk scores are going to be great advance. I think we can combine that with multi-omics. And then wearables uh, will provide you know, individual data for each, each person. And we can then combine these to enable precision medicine, You know, identify the high-risk individuals, identify the right drugs for them, uh, and improve, save lives. So that's what excites me about this uh, field. Dr. Bumbard? You know, I'm just motivated by serving our patients and our families and our healthcare communities that are really struggling after the pandemic that are exhausted and also are finding ways to improve the quality and access to healthcare. We've shown that patients are on board. They really value the, the engagement and the empowerment and the opportunity to have better access, quicker access to genetic testing and technologies and the services that otherwise certain underserved communities are effectively shut of. And if there's other alternatives, models of care that we can develop, like these digital solutions that can start to serve and fill in those gaps, those are the kinds of ripple effects that really excite me. I think that an unfortunate silver lining of the pandemic is that we're now ripe for these kinds of transformations, whether it's virtual care, digital care, and with the recognitions of the inequities, we're finally at a space to acknowledge that and work in a collaborative fashion towards advancing both access to healthcare and genomics, genomics services, as well as the quality of care that we provide. And I think that both genomics as a way to fundamentally advance precision medicine and digital health that can advance access and quality of care. We're at a very exciting crossroads right now. 
This has been a fantastic conversation. Fascinating, really. I so appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And best of luck as you go along on your path. Thank, Thank you. you so much. It was a pleasure. We've been talking to Dr. Iftikhar Kalu. He's a consultant in the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at Mayo Clinic. He's also on the National Advisory Council on Human Genome Research with the National Institutes of Health. Also with us today, Dr. Yvonne Bombard. She directs the Genomics Health Services Research Program at St. Michael's Hospital Unity Health in Toronto. If you have questions or comments about what you heard today, do send us an email. It is precisionpod, P-O-D, precisionpod, at mayo.edu. And for goodness sakes, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We will have future conversations about a number of different topics in precision medicine. I'm Kathy Werzer. Until next time, here's to your health and well-being.